0: From all of us at NRPR Group, welcome to Perfect Pitch. I'm your host, Nicole Rodriguez, the CEO and founder of NRPR Group. Here on Perfect Pitch, I interview top members of the media to discuss the tips, tricks, and tactics that PR pros and executives need to perfect their pitch and close really great stories. Welcome to Perfect Pitch. I am your host, Nicole Rodriguez, also the CEO of NRPR Group welcome back to those of you who have joined us before and welcome for the first time if you're here for the first time for those of you who've been following perfect pitch you know how much i enjoy inviting members of the media who have incredible backgrounds sometimes backgrounds also in pr so you can learn a little bit about being on both sides of the fence and today i am so happy to have i want to say to be honest a little bit of PR and journalism royalty here. I am joined today by Howard Bloom, whose career journey has—I mean, I literally could go on forever as to what he's done, both in PR and journalism, and even even authoring. Um, he's been a book author, or is a book author, a magazine editor, a scientist, a thinker, and a PR pro. Yeah, I I can't even go into his entire background, because I don't even think I would do him any justice. But what I can say is back in the day, Howard was a publicist and he founded the Howard Bloom Organization and worked with Billy Joel, who is one of my absolute faves, Michael Jackson, Cyndi Lauper, the talking heads, Lionel Richie, who we've both been able to work with. Not just that, he's written for The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, Wired, I mean, you name it. So, Howard, I don't even think that if I tried to go into your bio, I would give you any justice. Like, that is what we're here for. I want to go into your amazing background, your journey, and how you got here today. And I want to say thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us here on Perfect Pitch.
1: Nicole, it's a pleasure to meet somebody who understands the mysteries of today's PR. I understood the mysteries. I was the master of the mysteries of the 1970s and 1980s PR. And it was a very different thing in those days.
0: Yes, yes, I love it. And I can't wait literally to uncover it. So why don't we start with that, Howard? Let's start from the beginning. How you got into one authoring, getting into PR, getting into journalism. You Give us that, that history. I'm excited. Well, to-
1: uh, at the age of 10, I got into microbiology and theoretical physics. At the age of 12, I started accumulating scientific credentials. I built my first Boolean algebra machine. I co-designed a computer that won some science fair awards. I was schlepped off to a meeting with the head of the graduate physics department at the University of Buffalo, my local university, who told my mom, you don't have to save for grad school for him, he'll get fellowships in theoretical physics at any school he wants. And I was being tutored in outside the box science by the head of the company that made the valves for the first jet to break the sound barrier and the first jet to go to the edge of space. And at 16, I worked in the world's largest cancer research lab and came up with a theory of the beginning, middle, and end of the universe that predicted something that wouldn't be discovered for 38 years, dark energy. So the big question is, how in the world, coming out of that background with science as the, as the nuclei of my cells, did I get into PR in the music industry? And that is a long and strange story. But from the age of 12, I was fascinated by the ecstatic experience. And I felt it was something I needed to both experience and that I needed to understand from a scientific point of view. And a guy named William James who wrote a book called The Varieties of the Religious Religious Experience and was the founding father of American psychology gave me permission through his book to bring that into the realm of science. And when much later in life, I had the, the physics, The head of the Graduate Physics Department was right. I graduated magna cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa. I had fellowships in four schools at something I was gonna have to cobble together on my own because it didn't exist yet. Today it's called neuroscience. And I realized that grad school would be Auschwitz for the mind. Here I was fascinated with the ecstatic experience. How many ecstatic experiences are you gonna have or see giving paper and pencil tests to 22 college students in exchange for a psychology credit. And I got a chance to forget about my graduate fellowships and get into something I knew nothing about, pop culture. And that chance came because I had been named the editor of the literary magazine at NYU. The literary magazine, I cre- created or changed it to a combination experimental graphics and literary magazine it had a huge impact, not just on the NYU campus, but on the art director's community in New York City. I got calls, imagine this, you're a college student. You don't really, you're not aware of anything outside of NYU, even though you're in New York City. And you're getting calls from the art director of Look Magazine, this great big glossy biweekly magazine, the editor of Evergreen Review, which was the leading bohemian magazine in the world, Boy's Life, which was the Boy Scout magazine. So I had a chance to co-found an art studio, and I felt that would give me a periscope position into popular culture and especially into the dark underbelly where new myths and movements are made. And then I ended up tripping from one accident to another. I ended up founding the biggest PR firm in the music industry. And since I'm a a Martian, I'm not an alien, I'm not a creature from Earth, Um, no one on Earth has ever quite accepted me. I came into PR as an outsider bringing my science with me since science is my bones and my marrow. And I looked at all of the traditional ways of doing things and took those that showed promise of actually being effective and discarded all the ones that were not effective at all and invented whole new ones. So I was credited with reinventing PR in the music industry. You know, I was called the greatest publicist ever known by the guy who wrote the book on sticks and all kinds of stuff like that. And then went back to my science in 1988, I had a lucky break. Uh, I got very sick. I spent the next 15 years in bed. It took me three years to realize I was gonna have any life whatsoever. I was gonna have to reinvent myself on something called the internet. Imagine that in 1988 to 1991. So I was uh, living the way we've all had to live for the last year and a half thanks to COVID, I was alive on the internet, except we had no World Wide Web, we had no browsers. It was a dark and strange place, but there were other people there, Nicole, and that's what I needed. So I worked with Michael Jackson Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss Queen, Run DMC, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, ZZ Top, Run DMC, Joan Jett, and the list goes on and on and on. I was either sustaining their careers or I was taking unknowns like Prince, and at that point, Joan Jett, and making them icons and doing it through a combination. Look, if you walked into my office and said, you wanted me to represent you, I gave you a speech. And I said, if you expect me to fashion an artificial mask for you, an image, and sit back like a guy in a plaid suit with a cigar in his hand saying, kid, with this image, I'm gonna make you a star, I'm going to send you to my best competitor. That's not what I do. If you're going to work with me, you have to understand that music is not about an exchange of pieces of plastic. It is not about an exchange of downloads. It is not about an exchange of money. It is an exchange of raw human soul. When you sit down at two o'clock in the afternoon because you're on deadline to turn in an album and you have to write a lyric, you know damn well you cannot possibly write a lyric and you have no idea of how you've ever written a lyric in your life. But by four o'clock in the afternoon, on a reasonably good day, there's a lyric in front of you by four o'clock. My job is to find the gods inside of you who wrote that lyric. So you go on stage. You see the pupils of the audience dilating. You see their eyes widening. You see their faces melt. You see them come together in a giant blob of collective energy. That collective blob reaches a pseudopod, a tunnel, out to you and you become like an empty pipe. You become like a puppet on strings. You have an out-of-body experience. You see all of this from the ceiling and you see that energy from the audience flowing through you up to somewhere around your head, being utterly transmogrified, and then flowing back to the audience again in a reverberatory loop, a constant feedback loop. My job is to find the gods inside of you who danced you on that stage. If you're willing to accept that as the basis of our working together, then I will work with you. And I told my, my stars, you don't just owe your audience your songs, you owe your audience your life. And I didn't understand what I was talking about. All I knew was that it was true. If, after 20 years of thinking while laying there in bed for 15 years, by the way, in bed, I wrote three books and I founded two international scientific groups all on the internet. So laying there processing all of this, I finally realized what I had meant. It means if you have the stuff of superstardom in you, something I can't make, it has to be there. And if we succeed in what we're doing, kids are gonna put your poster up on their walls when they're in one of the most difficult transitions in life, going from childhood to sexuality, a really confusing period. And you're gonna become the trellis on which they grow. You're gonna become the role model on which you grow. So you don't just owe your audience your songs, you owe your audience your life. And finding the story of the gods inside of you, that was my job. I called it secular shamanism, which is a very strange term for a scientific person to use. But there are some things outside the bounds of current science that need to come inside the bounds of science, that science has to recognize as part of its challenge, as something it needs to understand if it's gonna understand this fucking universe itself. But PR was radically different from today and which makes me wonder about what PR is for you because I worked very hard. First of all, there's an old story from Thomas Carlyle, the social commentator of the 1800s. And he said a friend of his was in a field one day and he saw a bunch of sheep going by on one of those little narrow sheep paths going by in single file. And he decided to take his cane and put it across the path in front of the lead sheep. And the lead sheep jumped over it. And then all 2,000 other sheep jumped at precisely that spot, even though he withdrew his cane. There was nothing to jump over anymore. Well, that's how the press is. This is where knowing a little science comes in handy. So if you can pinpoint the lead sheep, and you can cultivate relationships with them, Getting a story from one of those will deliver a 1,000 other stories identical to it. So I pinpointed the lead sheep, and I established relationships with them by giving them useful information, the kind of stuff that they needed desperately, and uh, by taking people who were unknown and building them into superstars and cover material. And when I had enough superstars, I had enough uh, social magnetism that the lead sheep started coming to me and cultivating relationships with me. So if I signed you as a client and I spent six weeks studying everything that had ever been written about you, everything that had ever been written by you, every album cover you'd ever put out, and then come to your home or whatever your environment is, because this is what I require of my clients, and spent at least a day with no managers, no handlers, no wives, just you and me in the room, because my job was to find the gods inside of you and to find the story of how those gods came to be. If you let me do all of that, we could turn you into an icon and what's an icon? An icon is a stepping stone on which an entire, in which an entire generation sees itself mirrored, in which a bunch of kids who feel isolated, alone, and crazy because they're having all kinds of emotional experiences that no one else has ever expressed in the culture before. And you, if I'm going to make you a superstar and we really succeed mightily, it's because you will have expressed those inexpressible things that made all those people feel crazy and you will have brought them together and so they can recognize they're not alone. They are part of a group. They are part of a subculture. So giving subcultures voice was one of the most important things that I did, whether it was glam rock in the 1970s, whether it was heavy metal, country music, which is the voice of a group that was at that point isolated in the ghetto of the Bible Belt and dearly wanted to get wider recognition, ZZ Top, which was speaking on behalf of of another culture that felt repressed, Texas culture, disco, which was the music of the gay community, punk, Wrap all of these things were the voices of subcultures crying out for a right to exist. And, and if you were one of those lucky few who was the tongue of that subculture, you could be huge. And working with those subcultures, doing therapy, helping them find their soul was one of my biggest jobs. So this is where the questions come in.
0: I have... Chills because everything that I'm feeling, right? I'm feeling energy coming from you, and every sense of the the amount of purpose that you felt in your role in doing PR. This is why I do PR, and this is why I get so upset when now I feel like so much technology has come in to help people who don't feel the same kind of passion bastardize our profession. That is how it's changed. To me, everything that you say, I always say there's a science to this. There's a science to what we do. It's magic. And if you can tap into it, it starts with tapping into the soul of your client. And if you don't have a soul, and if you're coming to me because you need an ego feed or because you're just, it's like a high, you know, I've heard it said once before, we're crack dealers. We can get you, we can get you on covers. We can figure out how to get you on TV. But if you're doing it for the high, I don't want to work with you. What's your purpose? What are you doing? Right. And I don't work a lot within the music industry. I do this for tech, consumer products, other companies. And I'll work with musicians on behalf of their companies or on behalf of business projects that they have only because I think a lot of what you brought to the music industry and the passion that you made these these people whose music I still listen to because this is when music had soul and heart and purpose and meaning. And I, I, I hate to say it. I I'm not a fan of a lot of music nowadays because that's gone. It's been stripped, but you know, Lionel Richie has gotten me through a lot of hard days and uh, Paul Simon as well. Right. And it's like all of these Billy Joel got. So to me, the way you, explain how you talk to your clients. It sounds a lot like how, when I did PR in football, this was how I had to uncover it from those players. Many of them were coming and they were brand new college graduates here. You're about to be on the, you know, on TV and a superstar, just because you've been recruited to this team. And many of them didn't even know how to take that. They didn't know how to act. It's kind of like, uh, what do I do? And, you know, they would come into my office and I would, I was in charge of working with the rookies, the new guys. Right. So honestly, everything that you are saying 20 years ago, when I started that same passion and bringing that into more of like, this is how we're going to create the magic. I can help make you a star, but not if you don't have substance, not if there's not something to work with and the lead sheep story that I love. I'll tell you with the internet and so many other, whatever, becoming friends with certain lead writers, there's a bunch of sheep that follow them. If we could get 10 solid stories in VentureBeat, TechCrunch, whatever, it's called syndication. People who follow the journalist are going to want some of you. And if they can't talk to you, they're going to pull things from that journalist story. And you go from having 10 that turn into 100 and then you're on the map
1: given the fact that you can't reach anybody on the phone right? and I look, if I was working with you, I Mm -hmm. had working relationships with these lead sheep. Mm -hmm. They would pick up my phone call. I had no difficulty with that. I had a list of a hundred major people that I would sit in front of me. I took it with me everywhere. And these were all people. And I had their phone numbers and these were all people who would take my calls. And 15% of them were people who would automatically do a story for me because they trusted that if I was giving them a story, it was a solid story. And there's more to this because talking about the rookies, how do you deal with the rookies? When I was given Prince as a client, I got a call from Warner Brothers in LA. And Warner Brothers was a really intelligent organization. So its people were very bright. And this Princeton level person called me on the phone and said, you're gonna have a lot of trouble working with Prince. In fact, you're not gonna be able to do it. He can't do interviews. We set up two interviews for him out here in LA. He said absolutely nothing to the first interviewer. Then he tried to strangle the second interviewer. Nicole, I am not joking. This is exactly what she said to me. So I gave Prince's management the routine. I told them what I was gonna do. I'd worked with them on Earth, Wind & Fire. They trusted me already. And I flew to Buffalo, New York, uh, which is ironically my hometown, but that's where Prince was rehearsing in the Shea Theater where I'd gone to see a movie when I was 11 years old for his Dirty Minds tour. So I sat in the seats. I watched while the rehearsals were finished. At one o'clock in the morning, Prince and I looked for a room backstage where we could be utterly isolated. We locked ourselves in a room and I interviewed him from two o'clock in the morning until sunrise. And I got this amazing, amazing material from him. I went back to New York on the plane with my TRS-100. I was organizing the material in chronological order so you could clearly see the story of how Prince's soul came to be. Then I sent that to Prince, the edited version of what he had told me the version that took out the extraneous stuff and focused on what I call the passion points, the imprinting points, and sent it to Prince. And I said, look, we're going to set you up for eight interviews a day for three days in a row in New York, and then eight interviews a day for three days in a row in L.A. And there are certain rules you have to follow. You have to make each interviewer feel as if you are the only person in the world you've told your stories to. You have to take any stupid question that interviewer asks and answer it with your story, the story in this script. So an interviewer, for example, will ask, how do you characterize your music? One of the stupidest questions ever conceived. And you will answer with your story. And that interviewer will will go back home to his wife that night and say, honey, I'm brilliant. I asked this astonishing question. How do you categorize your music? And I got this amazing story out of Prince. And you have to make sure that even though you've just told that story to three other people, you do not say, as I said to the previous person or anything of that sort, you have to make that person feel you're the only one he has ever told that story to. So this coaching process helped Prince so much that he made me do it for every one of his proteges, including Kristen Scott Thomas, the actress, who was nominated for an Academy Award for The English Patient, and who played the mother in The Horse Whisperer. She's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. One of the greatest privileges of my life to work with her. So that was the technique. Now, it sounds very dry and mechanical. It's the very opposite. It's profoundly it's human. the
0: same technique I use, and I've never learned it from anyone. And you and I are probably somewhere in the stars Somewhere connected, I will tell you, it is the technique I have used for 20 years that I learned myself in the like with the Raider organization. What you created was what I call a messaging map, where it basically I sit with our clients for one to two hours and have them brain dump on me because it is the only way that I will actually learn how whatever invention or whatever it is they came to be, Howard. You are like, you have no idea how, one, you're inspiring me. And two, there are no other PR people that I know who use that technique. And I've just met the only other one.
1: Well, here's the trick. This is something. I am stoked.
0: This is when incredible.
1: We talk, we talk about the soullessness of the celebrities today. I ache because I know that if I were in that industry still. And if it were still a relevant part of my life, it isn't really anymore. Science is me, but I could change that totally. And kids are aching. They need stars with substance because these stars are the trellis on which they'll grow. And stars who are as thin as uh, a brightly colored candy wrapper and really have nothing to offer on the inside, those cheat the last two generation of kids have been cheated of the souls of the people they admire the most.
0: Which is why I don't do PR in the music industry, because it is allowed that all the music people basically can walk on their handlers, their PR people, whatever. And they need strong personalities to come in literally like you who have, for me, I'm like, I just don't have, I don't want to babysit because they are allowed to misbehave. They're misbehaving kids. Like, Amazing. and I will not, I will not do that. So I'm like, if you come to me and you want me to work with you, you need to have a business and I will help represent that business. Cause that means you're a business minded person and you will listen. You will listen to the coaching. You will allow yourself to be coached and you will look at yourself at a bit like with a bigger picture, which is why working with someone like Lionel Richie was a breath of fresh air because he understood. And I am just, I am, I'm just loving that we are getting to meet because I, I love this industry so much that it breaks my heart that people don't approach it in the same way with the same care, with the same love, understanding that everything is a narrative. And the way you explained, like I have a hundred people, whatever, this is what I tell my team, the exact same way that you built Howard decades later is still the right way.
1: Well, I'm gratified to hear that because I, like you, the right way person who has been on the wavelength, on this particular wavelength, and my heart aches for the kids who are deprived of substance and their celebrities.
0: Totally. And the thing of it is, it's people in this industry, in our industry, I, I, I call them all out to have the higher standards of themselves and of the people that they represent show up, be able to build out a narrative. They're, they're publicists who have a great Rolodex, and that's fantastic, but they couldn't think of a narrative the way you like the way you sit with a client and actually say, spill this on me. Give me everything because I'm going to take stories to the press. Instead, it's, well, I know this person and they'll write a story and then they'll leave the talent to the wolves. The talent doesn't know whether or not they should answer a a story in this way or this way. And they take control of themselves. And then all of a sudden there's a headline that looks awful, that it's like they shouldn't have even done that interview. I read interviews like that and it's like, who coached you before you ever went and spoke to a journalist? No one. And that is why when people say, well, PR isn't the ER. You're not even taking your profession seriously. There is actual, if you follow these steps, that's what Howard, you know what? I want every young PR person to listen to what you're saying because I feel like I'm like the only person who's told this to my team. I said, build your Rolodex of homies, figure out a way to get them on the phone. And if they won't phone, nowadays there's text, get on WhatsApp, however, they will talk. But I do have a list of people who will take any email, any call, any WhatsApp because I cultivate a relationship. What you did is right and it has not ever been wrong. It's the people who are now doing PR who are getting it wrong because they're trying to find the freaking shortcuts and you are firing me up because I'm like, this is right. This is the right way.
1: Well, there's another little, you could call it a trick. It's really not. When somebody stepped into a new position, like a new person came, Stephen Ford came in at the Associated Press. Well, as you know, a story in the Associated Press will reach two thousand newspapers, radio stations, television stations, and Mm -hmm. produce tremendous amounts of publicity. And I went over to his office and said, "Now, show me, tell me what you need." Yes. So I knew. How can I help you? So I knew what each of these people needed. I was, I once upon a time, I felt that I was a collector of souls. Because my job was to collect the souls of my clients, and my job was to collect the souls of my journalists, and my job was to nurture all of them to the best of my ability.
0: Howard, I adore you. I like literally, (laughs) you you have have it right for someone who, like you literally, you know what it was? You tapped into your soul. And that's why I feel like I went to school for PR, yes, but what I do, I didn't learn in a classroom. I did that to make sure I checked the box and got into a profession that felt right to me. I tapped into my soul and that's exactly exactly how you attacked it. And I am loving that we're having this conversation about the way you attacked it, the way I'm teaching my team to do it. I tell them, I'm like this, this might feel old school, but we don't take shortcuts here. We're here to understand what media need here to understand what our clients are trying to do and create matches. Create yeah. meaningful matches that Absolutely. work for both. Oh,
1: Absolutely.
0: we're going to be friends forever. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> that would be wonderful.
0: Yes, you're, but you're so inspiring, Howard. And I'm so happy to hear that Like this is what you did to, to bring the souls of some of our favorite people to life, to, to help people understand their story on top of just their music. Like it just it's it's amazing. Like, um, you know, in terms of now what you're doing, right? Right now, um, you're you're writing, and what is it that you're doing now? Out because obviously you're not doing. Well, PR. I went back to
1: my science. I'm an original scientific thinker, or at least that's what I would like to think. But uh, Channel Four TV says I'm the Einstein, Newton, Darwin, and Ford of the 21st century and your magazine says i'm the next stephen hawking except i'm not just interested in the material world i'm interested in the human spirit mm-hmm. and they've got it right and that that article in the year was headlined the philosopher at the end of the universe well that's very flattering i like that but i try to look at the entire universe from the big bang to what's going on in your brain and mind as we are having this conversation and i've assembled the timeline of the universe that i started when i was 12 years old that shows everything from the birth of protons to the birth of poetry and shows it all in a context you've never seen before. So my books are about giving you whole new perceptual lenses. Again, Channel 4 TV says these lenses change the way you see everything inside of you and everything around you and make sure you will see all those things in brand new ways. So that's my job on this planet. And I have two more books to write. I've written seven. So far, it, a book takes five years. It only takes a year and a half to write or two years to write. But then you have to publish it. and You have to promote it. Yep. So yep. that's the next 10 years of my life mapped out. And there is a new Howard Bloom Institute. And the Howard Bloom Institute is there to take my ways of thought, which are radically unconventional, mm-hmm. very contrarian, and to plant them in the culture so that people have the advantage of these lenses, not just now, but 350 years in the future, why? When I was 10 years old, nobody in my hometown of Buffalo wanted me. Other kids wanted to have nothing to do with me. My parents weren't the least bit interested in me. I was all alone. And one day a book was open in my lap and it said the first two rules of science are these, the truth at any price, including the price of your life. And look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. And I was hooked. And the two guys who saved my life were Galileo, the truth at any price, including the price of your life, and Anton von Leeuwenhoek. So two guys reached out over a distance of 350 years and caught me before I could fall. Wow! Gave me a reason for living. And my job is to give that next poor, confused kid, 350 years down the road, that same recognition, that same sense of a purpose and a mission in life. So the Howard Bloom Institute is there to try to achieve that goal. Now you know the odds are ten billion to one mm-hmm. against achieving that goal, but it doesn't matter. Somebody, somebody, the hell has to try to achieve it. Wow. Those need to be saved.
0: I'm one. I, I need to pick up one of your books now, at least one of your books. So I am going. Where can we? Can Amazon? Amazon where can anyone? Has more. Perfect. All right. Well, I am going to become a new Howard Bloom fan reading your books. I'm already a fan right now. This is just, this is probably one of the most inspiring interviews I've ever done. And I'm, I, I couldn't be more thankful that we've been well, putting you, you
1: Give me hope. I've never found anyone else who's on the wavelength of the human soul. Yeah. Oh. That's inside of us. 110%.
0: This literally has it's guided everything that I've done, professionally, even personally, and and that's I mean that's ultimately how you beat odds, right? Just following what your soul is telling you to do, following what you what you know innately is supposed to happen, even even if you feel like everything is stacked against you. And I
1: including the price of your life, and there's one vital word that's missing from the modern American vocabulary, hmm. persistence, persist, 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 persist. persist. Once upon a time, it was the summer of my freshman year of college, hmm. and I wanted a job in editorial. I yep. was a writer, i had been a writer since I was 16, and I wanted a job in that field for the summer. I made a list of all the 98 agencies, that offered editorial jobs in the New York Times. I called 97 of them, or 96 of them. I got turndowns from every single one. On the 97th one, I got uh, can you come in tomorrow? We think we have something for you. That's persistence. Yes. If I hadn't lasted until the 97th phone call, the 97th turndown, I wouldn't have gotten to that one. Very important yes.
0: Wow. And I think that is, again, with the introduction of technology, Howard, I'll tell you that what's happened is, and maybe it's not just technology, maybe it's just society and where we are right now. People give up. I think that people don't persist and they miss out. I think they don't persist and their confidence is then deteriorated and they don't, Push forward. That's why I continue to tell my team: if you don't have a great in your mind, you haven't formulated a great story for a journalist that you really, really believe in your soul. I tell them, if you believe in your soul that this person should be writing about a client. Maybe the very first pitch didn't hit the hit, didn't hit the mark. Keep studying them. Read what it is they're writing, or watch if they're on, you know, their broadcast personality or whatever. And keep going because they're going to see that, especially if you come at them with a real human approach. Hey, I feel a little bit stalkerish. This is the third pitch. However, this is what I'm thinking here because I just did this and just did that. And it's almost like they have to persist and find out for themselves before they actually believe it because there are too many people even in, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 some odd years. They give up and they're like, no, I send them a pitch. They don't want it. And they never reach out to them again. How do you build a relationship on that?
1: It's a principle from psychology. Hmm. You don't register something until you've seen it for roughly the 15th time. Right. So the first 14 times it's invisible to you. And then the 15th time you suddenly feel like you've heard it. If it's a piece of music or if it's a story for the very First time, and you wake up to it, which means that if you're a publicist, you have to get well, I've, I've made my staff get a minimum of 60 press breaks a month for my clients, for each of my clients. And the average was 120 press breaks a month. My competitors thought they were doing a superb job if they had six press breaks. But without those 120 press breaks a month, how could I drive the name of Prince? Right. into the public mind yep. if it was going to take 14 mentions that they wouldn't register in order to get to that 15th that they would register.
0: Absolutely. And nowadays, I think they even say it takes 24
1: because
0: <laughs> he, because there's so much media and things being thrown at people. I, the number that I've seen now is 24.
1: Well, I agree with you. I think that's probably the case. And I envy you, your ability to get the current lead sheep on the phone, but the most important thing is soul. Soul The most important thing is that internal resonance, that empathic center with which you understand and love your client and with which you understand and love the press person you're about to call.
0: We are somehow some way connected in the universe and I could not be happier that this interview has taken place because what you have shared with us, I hope everyone listens to because it. I feel like for the longest time, I'd been the only one to try to verbalize in the way that you did so eloquently. But this is exactly what I've been trying to tell people and why I believe in this profession so much and why I feel like I've been able to be successful. And other people are like, oh, well, I do this and this. I'm like, I do it from my heart and my soul for them and for them. And when things like this come together and it works and a company is able to build and they're able to employ people because the rest of the world knows about them and investors want to give them money to keep going. You know what I've done? I have helped that company create jobs and create sustainability for human beings. That's how important. I feel our profession is, and I feel like I'm I'm blessed and I'm thankful that that our paths have crossed because this this means a lot to me. And hearing this come from you, I hope that people are like you represented some of the biggest names, period, icons of our time, and you helped make that happen. That is in, that's incredible. Like I just I tip my hat off to you, and I'm I'm thankful that that we're, we're here sharing this moment.
1: Well, thanks, Nicole. And hopefully we will stay in touch.
0: Yes. I,
1: I am am cheered and inspired by the fact that you're carrying on this tradition.
0: With my whole heart and soul. (laughs) Great. Absolutely. Well, uh, Howard, I wish we could talk for uh, another hour, but alas, you know, time, time does uh, get in front of us and we have to you know, call this very first interview to a close. However, when you publish your next book, I would love to have you back. So we will make sure to stay in touch for that. And obviously via email and everything else, but Howard, I I look forward to also continuing this relationship, but thank you.
1: That's that's terrific, Nicole. So hopefully I will see you again soon.
0: Yes, and by the way, my daughter, who uh, a shout out to my my hardworking creative daughter, just got accepted to NYU. She is going to be at Tisch.
1: Oh, fantastic. What's she going to be majoring in?
0: Film. She wants to be a film director.
1: Fantastic. Well, yeah. there's a film on me. It's a 66 minute film and it's won two festival awards so far, which is not really relevant to what your daughter is doing. But I I've need to awesome see it. To.
0: Where can people watch it?
1: Um, look up Howard Bloom on Amazon Video. Okay. Um, it's called the Grand Unified Theory of Howard Bloom. It's on Apple. It's on. It's on everything but Netflix.
0: All right. Well, I will look for it on everything but Netflix until I find it and I'm able to watch it. But you do. You know what? And after I watch it, I will send you an email um, just so that you know that I kept my word.
1: Terrific. All, All right. Have a wonderful night.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And everyone who joined us, please. Thank you for supporting Perfect Pitch. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can right here on YouTube. And Howard, have a great rest of your day, night. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Nicole.
0: Thank you for listening to Perfect Pitch. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, NRPR Group's YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information on Perfect Pitch and NRPR Group, please head over to our website at www.nrprgroup.com.